All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good buddy, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, bro? Not much. Just uh, chowing down at my kids' Halloween candy. Uh, they didn't go <laughs> trick-or-treating. Like, we didn't let that. We, we live kind of out in the boonies anyway, but we didn't really go trick-or-treating, but we bought a bunch of candy, and my planned, like, a bunch of games to play at home. Um so like minute to minute games. And one of them was to put an Oreo on your forehead. And then you had to turn your head up like this. And without using your hands, you had to try to get the Oreo to like go into your mouth. Nice. And like the faces my, my kids were making. <laughs> it was so funny. It was so cool. But now I'm eating some of the leftover candy. So. I dig it. Yeah. And also too, like you're, you're eating a candy that uh, tends to spark controversy on the internet. It's Marty true. is chowing down on candy corn. <laughs> I, I just don't understand hatred for candy corn. I just don't get it. Like, it's just, it's literally pure sugar. I think <laughs> I just don't like the texture, maybe. Sure. Um, like, I don't know. It's, it tastes good to me. It's fine. But I get, I, I guess the one thing I don't know, I, I do agree with when people say they don't like those mallow cream pumpkins. If oh, you know yeah. what I'm talking about? They're like, mm-hmm. they're kind of like candy corn, but they're not. I, I, I don't think those are very good, but candy corns <laughs> right are just right. All right. Well, here's here's the deal. If we're going to be, you know, divisive, at least it's around something as silly as candy corn. Like, let's we'll just stick with that kind of divisive talk, especially amongst yeah. the kind of season we're in right now. <laughs> we'll go with yeah, candy no, corns. No doubt. And, and I'm sure there's lots of other people out there that love candy corn. So shout out to y'all. If you like candy corn, it's great. And uh, you, all of us, we can all get together, have a corn party, and share it together. And the haters can stay, <laughs> and they do their own thing. <laughs> yes. Well, it looks like Marty, our guest with us today, uh, seems like she's indicating that she is indeed a, a fan of candy corn. So with us today is Juanita Rasmus. Juanita, is this true? You are a fan of the candy corns. I am candy corn and I go way back. And so it's a, a childhood <laughs> memory food. You know, yeah. how can you hate on out to the memory food. That's right. You know, but anyway, everyone has their option to choose what they like and what they don't. But I do have good memories of candy corn, indeed. <laughs> well, Juanita, it's 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 a great it's great to have you here today, and we uh, we're we're excited for our conversation. 
Um, before we hop to it, though, we have a, a question that we ask every one of our guests that come on the show. Okay. Uh, and the question is, who is your favorite ice hockey team? My favorite ice hockey team? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, it used to be in Houston, we had the Houston Arrows mm. have uh, gone with the wind. So I would have to say that historically, the Houston Arrows would have been my favorite hockey team. Awesome. Right very, on. Very cool answer. I'm always, I have to say, there are people that I, before we have them on the show, I wonder what they're going to say. And I'm always surprised by the people like every every person that comes on the show, except for Josh, I never have any surprise who he's going to say. But every guest, it's I, I'm constantly surprised by what they say, and so it's really cool to hear. Um, Juanita, will uh, give us a little bit of bio about you. Who are you? Uh, what's your faith bringing? What are you doing? What, what what's your contribution to the faith community, Ben? Okay, well, give me five hundred questions right there. Yeah. <laughs> Good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. My name is Juanita Campbell Rasmus. I'm a native Houstonian. Um, my husband and I, my husband is Rudy. Um, about uh, almost 29 years ago, started a little church in downtown Houston called St. John's Downtown. It's United Methodist Church, which means we have golden arches on our building like a McDonald's, but you know, not quite, but anyway. <laughs> and so uh, as United Methodist pastors, we were given an opportunity to go to this little church downtown that the denomination was going to close. And they said, see what you can do with. And we got there and literally there were homeless men and women sleeping on doorsteps around the building. Um, it was a safe haven for the homeless community in downtown Houston. Um, we started serving meals uh, to the homeless once a week and then before we knew it we were serving meals every day we were serving about 500 meals a day to the homeless community and then it began to be okay so what do you do next how do you empower people out of homelessness so we began to provide social services there were um, uh, barbers and beauticians who would volunteer their service matter of fact one of the beauticians was Tina Knowles Lawson uh, Tina Knowles at the time uh, Beyonce's mom was one of our first member in her family. And so she provided hair styles for the women uh, who were homeless. And somebody might be saying, well, why would you do that? Well, because how do you feel when you get your hair done? You feel better about yourself. And so we started doing things that we thought would empower people to begin to feel more human, more whole. Um, and so those were the kinds of things that we started doing. We started with nine members and in seven years grew to uh, about 3,000 members, and over the years, we've had as high as, I think, about 12,000 members at our church. Um, what we do and what we've done has always been pretty much rooted in Matthew 25 and 35. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick and in prison, you came to see about me. Um, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And so that's kind of what our work has looked like in terms of how we've served the world. More recently, um, we established Timonos uh, Community Development Corporation because the difference between a person being homeless and a person not being homeless is really simple. A key to put a, uh, into a, a handle on a door and you go in and no longer you're homeless. And so we've created about $30 million worth of housing for formerly homeless persons in downtown Houston. 
um, Tina Knowles Lawson just with um, the Knowles uh, Place Apartments. That was our first project. Um, more recently, even than that, the Bread of Life, our nonprofit that started all this work actually uh, in, in alignment with St. John's. Uh, Bread of Life is now, um, has now become a disaster relief agency and uh, in, in morphing with the times. We are providing, uh, we started out COVID-19 providing 500 families a week with groceries. And these were families that uh, were on the margins. And now that number has increased to about 2,100 families a week. And these are people who are showing up in late model cars, who uh, were in the oil industry and various industries that have been uh, affected negatively by COVID-19. And so we are uh, providing food and products, uh, how, you know, um, personal hygiene stuff, uh, cleaning products and uh, partnering with not only the Houston Food Bank, but Matthew 25, an organization that's partnered with us and, and others, individuals and corporations who are saying, hey, we see what you're doing, we wanna help. And so that's how we've been serving in the world. Uh, me personally, uh, I see myself as a contemplative uh, I'm a person who values quiet and silence and solitude because it's in those places that I feel I hear God most clearly um, out of um, an experience that I call the crash, which is what my book is about. I learn a lot about myself. So um, the transformative lessons that I learned from having had a major depressive episode, I'm now sharing them with the world. Uh, and I think the timing couldn't have been any better because with COVID-19, so many people are feeling a sense of the rug being pulled from their feet. And so the practices that I share and learn to be are practices that help center us uh, in disorienting times. Did I answer all 500 questions? <laughs> yes, you did a great job. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, that, and that's that's perfect too. This so like like you said, um, you put out a book that was super timely. Learning to be uh, finding your center after the bottom falls out, and this was wonderful. By the way, I really enjoyed uh, reading Thank it. You. I I too um, deal with depression, and so this spoke to me in, in many 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 ways. Um, but yeah, oh, so. so what what led you to want to write this book though, and and who is it for? You said what led me to want to write the book. I did not want to write the book. I feel failed <laughs> to write the book. It's there like write the book or else, you know. Um, well, I, I've written this book three times. Gosh, this is the third time. The first time I wrote it, um, I think it was too soon after the experience, having had a major depressive episode. Um, and it was still very tender for me even to talk about it. Um, I think I had not reflected deeply long enough on, on some of the lessons I learned from the experience. The second time I wrote it was about 11 years ago and I thought, well, I don't know if I can write this. And so I'm gonna hire somebody to help me. And that didn't work out. And so three years ago, a dear friend of mine at, at InterVarsity Press, my editor, Cindy Bunt said, Juanita, let's do this. And it just so happened I had uh, six months of time where I was staying with my grandson while my daughter and son-in-law were getting adjusted to having a baby. 
And so the spirits really clearly say, you're, you're here to do two things in Indianapolis. You're going to take care of your grandson and you're going to write this book. And so that's how the book got written. Now, um, that second part of your question, uh, you said, who is it for? I think initially when I wrote it, I wrote it for people who are still uh, uninformed about mental health diagnosis. You know, it's so funny, Josh, and you know this. Um, if a person is diagnosed with cancer or um, they, they find out there's heart disease or whatever, people start bringing casseroles. You get diagnosed with depression, nobody shows up. Nobody's bringing a casserole over, right? And so my hope was that in writing the book, I would help demystify mental illness, mental health challenges, that we would begin to be, have a, a higher level of conversation around mental health. You know, we can talk about everything. Um, I was on Tina Knowles Lawson's show, uh, talks with Mama Tina and Michelle Williams, who was formerly of Destiny's Child. She and I have both experienced major depression. And so uh, Michelle said this and it was so wonderful. She said, we can talk about everything from neck down. Everything from the neck down. But we don't talk about anything from the neck up. We shy away from it. We tend to um, even feel shame about it if we're experiencing. We tend to see it as taboo. We have a lot of uh, myths around mental illness. And yet it's amazing that as Christians, we're not talking about the fact that King Saul had mental illness. Why else was he chasing David around, trying to kill him, loving him one minute and hating him the next minute, um, finding that only David had the capacity to sing, to soothe his rage by playing the harp. You know, and so we can see that mental illness has been portrayed in scripture, just didn't name it that way, you know? Uh, and yet many of Jesus' primary miracles were what? Helping put people in their right mind. And so I, I shared it in hopes of tearing down the walls of shame, of tearing down um, the sense of embarrassment and, um, hopefully inviting us to have a higher level conversation around mental health diagnosis. Um, and then also I wanted, so that's to affirm the people who like you and I've had a mental health diagnosis. But then also the second part of the book was to help uh, educate people who don't know what it's like so that they could kind of in my uh, story, they could be with me when I'm laying there 18 to 20 hours a day, not able to get out of bed, sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day, um, waking up every day, feeling like I was falling into this dark pit and wondering would I ever hit the bottom. And so I wanted to offer them an opportunity to see what it's like in some ways and then give people at the end of each chapter, there's a pause to reflect. So there's an opportunity to reflect on if anything I said in this kind of memoir style writing spoke to you, registered with you, uh, struck a nerve or struck a chord with you, um, and, and uh, giving people opportunities to see spiritual practices that I've learned that help ground me, help me to stay centered. Um, as I said earlier, this is such an amazing 
experience for me that this book would come out during COVID-19 because so many people are at home now in quarantine or experience loneliness or experiencing uh, deep sadness. And some are no doubt clinically depressed. Um, many are experiencing heightened anxiety. I don't know about you, Josh, but, but with my depression, I was also diagnosed with anxiety. And so I'm taking medication for the depression, taking medication for anxiety, seeing a psychiatrist once a month, seeing a psychotherapist every two weeks. Why? Because I am working to live my best life with a diagnosis. That's probably the fourth message I want to convey is you can live with a mental health diagnosis. Here's the key though. You're going to have to learn to live different. Different means a lot of different things to different people. For me, one of the things it meant was that I had to pay attention to the childhood story. My childhood narrative did not serve me. It was a strive, try harder, work harder, keep pushing, make something happen kind of narrative. And that wasn't life-giving because in that narrative, there was no place for rest. There was no place for play. There was no place for refreshing and renewal. There, there was no place for anything to help um, me to, to know that I could have joy in life. I was simply working to be accepted and approved of. And then the bottom line is that I came to see that while I had turned that attention towards feeling like I needed other people's acceptance and approval, therapy through prayer, through times in silence and reflection came to see really I was alone for God's acceptance and approval. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And this, I think, <laughs> I think it is uh, it's so cool how your book just happened to come out during COVID. Because uh, as you said, this has been a, a long process that you've been working on. And it's so exactly. maybe, maybe that long process was necessary. You know, it's all a part of it and it's all a part of the journey. Um, but yeah, one, one other thing too, that, um, I thought was really uh, interesting or helpful is uh, recently my mother-in-law was diagnosed uh, with breast cancer. And so she's been going through that. Um, everything has been very good news so far. So that that's good. But um, I sent her uh, a copy of learning to be after I read it and she's actually starting it today. Yeah. And so she's already been texting me oh, wow. quotes, little quotes and stuff. Oh, so wonderful. yeah. So it's, it's well, helping tell her to send me the quotes too. If she likes them, I want to know about it. <laughs> awesome. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure, uh, Eileen, when you listen to this, uh, that's, that's my mother-in-law. Eileen, when you listen to this, you have to hit up Juanita and send her those quotes. <laughs> yeah. I'm on social media, JuanitaRasmus.com. I mean, I too am a cancer survivor. And I noticed I called you a cancer survivor. So Eileen, I'm looking forward to your living into that. Mm. Well, and Juanita, I wanted to add, because um, you, you talk a lot about how in general, there's a lot of stigmatization around the idea of mental health. But I also sure. I also find that I had a friends in high, in high school as once I began going to church, I was started making new friends uh, within the church that I you know, that I hadn't known before. And I noticed that their families oftentimes, and, and it's funny to say oftentimes, but it's true. They would oftentimes talk about how, you know, going to a counselor was a weakness. Um, and it seemed, it seemed to, it, it, as I've worked in ministry now, 
it's almost seemed to be like an epidemic in the church that yeah. that being that they're paying attention to your mental health is weak or it's inappropriate or not trusting in God or something like right. that. And can, right. can you, can you talk for just for a brief minute, just as a follow-up to what you were talking about before, why do you think that is specifically in the church? You know, fortunately, and this is one of many areas, but unfortunately church has often demonized what it didn't understand. Not only have we demonized what we didn't understand, we didn't even try to understand it, which is criminal. Um, when you're talking about the fact that just as uh, we see God in a Trinitarian relationship, we are also Trinitarian. We're mind, body, and spirit. And so often, especially, I would say up until now, we have often tried to separate the sciences from the reality of scripture. I think neuroscience is helping us to see that there is a great correlation between what the word says about the mind and its thoughts and thought processes and speaking life and all of this, that's up above the next stuff, right? And so neuroscience is helping us to see there's a real connection and we can see that there are uh, certain neural pathways that get laid down based on stories we're telling ourselves. Now, these stories get created early on in childhood. Our ego is trying to find out how we fit, how we uh, can expect, experience our sense of being in this family system that we're in with all this dynamic. And then there's a point when the story that the ego has told us it's kind of like training wheels on a bike. We wouldn't expect to be 45 years old riding bike with training wheels on it. There's a point where you have to say, wait a minute, that story served me to a point, but now it's time for me to take the authority of my own life and begin to write a story that's balanced, that gives me the capacity to um, notice what I'm noticing about my behavior, about my experiences. Um, and so for me, I see that this is, again, one of the many areas where the church, and I'll say it this way, is invited to grow its understanding about what it means to be a human being. That we are, again, not just spirit, not just body, but we're also the mental constructs that we live with as well. Yeah, I really appreciate that and I, I think I really liked what you said about my body and soul, my mind, body, and spirit, and just the how how we live with all of those things. And I often quote to my children the idea when Paul talks about how we're all part of the body of Christ. Each one of yeah. us has a different role to play, yeah. um, and uh, it wouldn't be helpful for you know if if we if we were a family of six and one of us was supposed to be the legs, but we never pulled up our end of the bargain. <laughs> so, right, and, exactly. And if one of us is supposed to be the mind, but we're constantly messed up and you know we, we're not able to focus and we can't do that, and our family is constantly right. going to be going through this this issue yeah, all, exactly. all the time. And so to focus exactly. on that, I, it's been, been an interesting story to see how um, mental health has been encouraged more so in the church. And it's, it's yeah. 
it's been telling to see people who are willing to live into that and then also people who are pushing back still um sure. kind of helps to see you know who's kind of living the old way and who's who's willing to check new things out so exactly you know i think one of the things i'm reading a book called healing our beginning and it's by sheila lynn dennis lynn and matthew lynn her last name is l-i-n-n and one of the things i just underlined last night is um how they were saying that although we are not uh, in in they're they're talking about how even in conception there are some mental patterns that are getting laid down. Although we are not yet cognitively developed, we are fully aware energetically and spiritually. We know the feel and the intention of everyone and everything around us. Now think about this. They're saying that there's some mental cognition happening even though the baby quote isn't actually formed. And, it, and if you wanna notice this, see a small child, how that small child or baby might easily go to certain people and yet may not go to certain other people. That's because that child already has a sense of discerning. There's something already present in that child that's getting that child know that um, this person doesn't feel safe to me or doesn't feel uh, good to me or whatever. And so that sense is already in us. And so at some point, we might have to pay attention to what are those kinds of cognitions we were experiencing and how have they shaped our life? It says, because we are so exquisitely conscious at the beginning, whatever happens to us then imprints upon us. That's the point I wanted to get to. Our mind is like a computer and it's imprinted on. And there are times where you know, we used to hear it all the time, garbage in, garbage out. Now, it doesn't mean somebody sat down and wrote a program of mental garbage, but it can mean one's experiences were not life-giving and were more poisonous than expansive. And so the invitation when we talk about mental health in the church, begin to do what the word says, be not conformed to this world, okay? So let's say world, let's break it down to be not conformed to your world and how your world imprinted stuff on your mind but be what? Transformed. You can rewrite the program by the what? Renewing your mind. There is a way that the spirit of God will help us to pay attention. If we'll notice what we're noticing, if we're noticed, for me, one of the things I, I came to notice was I went to see a psychotherapist um, because in the United Methodist Church, you want to be a pastor, you have to take a psychological profile. And so I took the profile and the therapist said, um, you have some anger issues. Well, first of all, here I am living out of this narrative of being a good little girl, following all the rules. And I came to realize I did have anger issues. You know why? Because the metrics in my mind said, good little girls don't get mad. So when you do get mad, what do you do with your anger? You stop it. 
right? And then at some point, for some people, and perhaps the better way in many ways of managing anger is to explode, not own people, but to, in essence, deal with it, do some processing of it. But for people who turn it inward, we implode. And so one of the things my therapist later told me was that depression is anger turned inward because we don't feel that we have a right to be angry. And so if I, if I take that a step further, it becomes God has blessed me so much. I'm, I'm so much better off than so many people. I have you know, resources in ways that others don't have. So what should I be angry about? Well, you can be angry because <laughs> the Bible says we can be angry and we don't have to sin because we're mad as hell. Mad about what? Mad, mad about injustice in our world? Mad about the fact that there are still children in America who go to bed sleep without food and we weigh billions of tons of food? There's a lot that we can be mad about. Not a mad that freezes us, but rather a mad, an anger that fuels us. If we're created in the image of God, and I believe we are, then if my father, Abba, Mama, can get pissed, then so can I. Now, what we do with it is a whole different matter. And so learning to process the anger so that um, as I said, it becomes instrument for change. Um, the thing that I get angriest about, perhaps this is an opportunity calling me for service. Perhaps this is a way that I'm invited to be my most expansive self and serve the world and community, my family, those around me. Or and maybe my anger is an invitation for me to pay attention to how I've been thinking about that thing. Yeah, that I love that that uh, language of an invitation. You know, to reframe situations and talk about them is okay. What's the, what's the invitation here? Uh, we recently did a conversation with uh, Rob Bell um, about you know along the lines of everything is spiritual and and that reframing uh, is so helpful. And he talked about you know you can see things as a as a wall or as a door. And so you can ask yourself, what's That's the invitation right. here? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the anger thing though. Cause I actually, I wanted to, to bring that up because, uh, like I said, I too, um, experienced depression and it actually, like when I read that line in the book, you know, depression is anger tur turned inward. Um, I was like, holy crap, that named it perfectly for me because my depression began, uh, earlier on when Marty and I, uh, worked in a, a church together that was extremely toxic um when we lived in uh in south florida together and i became very angry <laughs> and bitter constantly sure. and so that anger sure. absolutely sure. i i turned it inward because it was my first sure. job in a church i just thought oh this must right. be what it means to work in a church i didn't know any better right. um but right. very quickly it, it turned into depression and it's still something i'm i'm dealing with today um but what's been interesting though is is also as you're talking i was thinking about how i have uh you know through you know therapy and prayer and contemplative practice um how i've been able to reflect on that anger and bring it to a much healthier mm -hmm. place um mm -hmm. and we've we've done episodes before where perhaps i 
expressed my anger in ways that weren't necessarily healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm learning slowly uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, to grow in, in understanding that anger better and express it in ways that are, are more helpful than just, sure. you know, tearing things down all the time. So I appreciated yeah. that bit about anger. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the other things, Josh, for me, when I go back to talking about our narratives, I didn't feel as a child that I could be angry. I didn't feel that it was uh, an emotion that was made available to me as a child. I don't, and I talk about this a little in the book. I don't know if partially it was because I was an African-American growing up in a segregated Houston. And so it was safer to get angry uh, because it could be in your life. And we, we see certainly things haven't changed a whole lot in that regard. Um, but what we recognize and what I, I began to recognize as the spirit helped me deconstruct my story and as my therapist helped me deconstruct my story is that often when it came to the prodigal son story in the scripture, I was the prodigal son. Now, you know, when I first heard the story, the prodigal son always pointed to the one that left. Uh, in, in reflecting on the story, I realized they were both prodigal sons. One left, but came back. One was at home and filled with anger, resentment. And so I did an ode to the prodigal son, uh, the one who left in, in learning to be, because that was one of the ways that I was paying attention to my anger, my resentment is by looking at that story through a different set of lens. And so for me, uh, it's always about looking at my anger um, and noticing what I'm noticing about it and finding out if there's indeed some treasure in it um, and how that invitation is inviting me to either maybe reconcile something in myself or reconcile something in the world or take some action or in some cases, just notice what I'm noticing. Um, I, I, I wrote an article for, um, I think it was Christianity Today, or I think it was Christianity Today called, uh, it's not about the cheese. It's on my, my social media webpage. You can find it on my LinkedIn, Juanita Rasmus. Um, but it, it's called, it's not about the cheese. And it was an article about uh, the fact that when COVID-19 started, my husband and I, whom I love dearly, I must say, I have to say that up front so people don't get the wrong understanding, okay? I love this man, all right? We've been married 35 years and would I do it all over again? Heck yes, in a heartbeat. So here we are, have quarantine, just the two of us. And I am a person who is always, well, since the crash, I started working from officing from home instead of going to the church because I found out through the crash that I'm an introvert, but I was living as though I was an expert and it was wearing the hell out of me, okay? And so I learned, I had to do some things differently, which is what I'm saying to those who've been diagnosed with a mental health diagnosis. I had to make some changes about how I lived. It was not life-giving for me to be in our uh, church offices on a regular basis every day, day in and day out because of the environment at the time. We were in emergency rooms and people were coming in and out of our church doors seven days a week. It wasn't an office environment where everything is calm. There was 
often lots of chaos and lots to be managed. And I found that very draining for me. So I started working from home. So here we go. COVID-19, now all of a sudden, my husband is working from home. New story. So one day, uh, because I know that he's not used to being confined at home, he's an extrovert. He, every morning, you know, he, the sun comes up, he's out, he's gone for the day. He comes back when the street light comes on, right? And so he burns all of that energy out and seeing people, meeting with them in coffee shops and all that, but not me. And so I'm trying to make life comfortable and pleasant for him at home. So I'm checking on him. Do you need anything? Do you need, you know, you want me to fix your lunch? Do you need water or whatever? And one day I go to the refrigerator and I pull out some cheese. My daughters had sent me this really neat, specialty cheese box from Europe because uh, um, I, um, I like European cheese. So they sent me some cheese and I squeezed three little slices and I put it on the counter and I turned to put the cheese back in the refrigerator, closed the door. And when I turn around, one of my pieces of cheese was gone. And there was a big human rat named Rudy who had just eaten one of my pieces of cheese. I was furious. I, I, thank God he had a, a Zoom conference he had to go to it. So he took his cheese and went to the next room. But then I took some deep breaths and I invite you to do that now. Breathe in through your nose. Come on, guys. And out through your mouth and you're blowing through a straw. Again, breathe in through your nose. Out through your mouth as though you're blowing through a straw. You guys breathing while I'm talking. And our audience is breathing. And so I took some deep breaths and I said, what is this really about? Rudy has eaten out of your plate for 35 years. Why are you so upset now? And so I stayed with it. This is a time when you stay with the anger. And so I stayed with the anger. And what I came to see is that I had been liberally giving myself to making sure Rudy was comfortable but wasn't recognizing my own discomfort, that my space has been encroached upon now. The, my, my way of being with COVID-19 so different. I wasn't able to go and meet friends as I normally would one day a week. I wasn't able to have an art date out where I could go to the museum and have that kind of experience one day a week. That my life had changed too. But my emphasis has been on making him comfortable at my expense. And so then I realized that I had to begin to pay attention, caring for myself, that my husband has always been really good at caring for himself. Anger in that moment was a teacher. It wasn't about the cheese but it was a moment to see what was going on inside of me. That's, I mean, that's, uh, that's really helpful for me personally to hear. I, I have four young children. They're 10, nine, eight, and six. And um, the eight-year-old, um, 
is currently and has been for a while thinking through how to manage his feelings of anger. Um, And he, he definitely is not a stuff it down inside kind of person. He is the type of person that someone says something he doesn't like, he's going to get up, he's going to come over, he's going to side one. Uh, You know, someone says something or does something he doesn't like, he's going to come over, he's going to rip that toy out of your hand and he's going to break it. He's going to rip that, that break that Lego thing up. And um, I've never thought until just this moment of, of applauding for him the, the 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 fact that he isn't just burying it deep inside and not doing anything about it now the choices he chooses to make and how he manages that more childlike because he's eight but absolutely what, but the fact that he's not stuffing it down and instead he acting upon it and trying to manage it so something happens and he he action on it Um, i've never thought about just until this moment of approaching that and saying killian good work stuffing that down and pretending like it didn't happen now focus on the action you're choosing to make instead of so instead of punching or kicking what could we do um and i've also i've spoken with my daughter about that recently you know there's there's so many different ways to manage when you just feel like you need to scream. Scream. Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, exactly. But don't, but don't allow that to, and one of the things I've constantly heard said, and I agree with is it's okay to be angry and it's okay to be upset, but exactly. don't do anything you can to stay there, to try and right. remain in that place because you remain in that place. And then now it's not just you that's upset. It starts to carry over, and other people start. It becomes very uh, pandemic-like, and you know, exactly. we're yeah, we're know, experiencing some of that right now. Yeah, and so I'm angry, and I'm staying there, and so now other people right. start to get angry, and other, sure. and then before you know it, the whole house is mad, and everyone's angry. Exactly, and you can't get away from it. And um, something that within your book that really kind of stuck with me is you talk about this idea of the dark night of the soul. Um, yeah. And part of me feels like when you stay in that anger, that's where that starts to come from. But but can you talk a little bit about what is the dark night of the soul? Like, what does that look like? Um, and then I, going with form, I'm going to ask more than one question. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like, here what, we go. <laughs> what, what is the dark night of the soul? But then how did this lead to you finding your being in God? Okay. Thank you for asking that. That's really good. So the dark night of the soul, uh, there was a poem written in the 13th, I think it was the, no, it might've been the third century by St. John of the Cross. And of course, St. John of the Cross being one of the early church fathers. Um, And it's a very short poem. It was a mystical kind of poem. And in it, he talked about this process of having this sense as though, I'll put it in my words, if my life were an onion, I was being peeled back to that center place. You know, if you cut an onion and you look at it in the very middle, there's often this little green bud coming up in it. Um, And this sense that our life had been made of all these various layers and that sometimes these layers end up 
isolating us away from God. And I'm using this onion analogy. He didn't use that. But the dark night of the soul is the place where I found myself no longer clothed by the roles that I had played, no longer satisfied, content to have being in my doing. Many of us, especially in America, um, in the West, have found our identity in our capacity to say, oh, I do this for a living, or I do that for a living, or I work with these people, or I've, I've created this, or produced that. We're very much interested in justifying our being by our capacity to produce. And so what happens when that's taken away from you? And for me, my experience of depression wasn't just a mental health diagnosis. It was also a spiritual reality that all of a sudden, everything that I thought that I was and that I was trying to do well, trying to be a good wife, trying to be a good mom, trying to be a good pastor, a good daughter, a good sister, a good neighbor, a good friend, and it goes on and on and on and on. Those things no longer interested me. They did not get out of the bed when I could not get out of the bed. There was nothing about them um, that said, that is your life. So now regroup, get it together so you can keep living that life. It was a big blank. The blank was the place of the dark night of the soul where it was just me. And in that space, there was this experience of encountering God by his offering, by God's offering um, little questions. Like one of the first questions was, who are you? In essence, now that you can't get out of bed and go make something happen, now that you can't get out of bed and go write a sermon or go uh, volunteer at your kid's school or go uh, to dinner with your husband, who are you? Beyond your roles and titles, who are you? And it's the place where I came to say, God, I don't know who I am. I have no clue. Because I thought who I was was the person doing all those things. But to find out that there was deep emptiness inside of me and to have God say, if you'll let me, I'll help you build a life you can live with. And so then God began to ask other questions. One of the things I found with the who am I question, and this was over a period of time, that I was really loved by God. You see, I could tell other people all day, and I did <laughs> for 28 years, that they were loved by God. I knew they were loved by God. I did not doubt that at all, but I had no real understanding that I too was loved by God, period. I lay in my bed one day and I couldn't remember how to get out of the bed to go to the restroom. And all I could think was maybe if I could roll my body out of the bed like a pencil, then maybe I could roll to the restroom. And so as I laid there trying to figure out if I could roll my body out of the bed, 
the spirit said, look at you. You can't do anything for me, but I love you. Now, what I heard was, look at you, you've blown it. You've ruined this life I've given you. You can't do anything for me. How am I gonna use you if I can't, if you can't do anything for me? But I love you. Because that was my narrative around God. God for me was a cross between Judge Judy and Santa Claus, and either of them could mess up your Christmas, right? And so as I lay there, I've never been more grateful that my mind was so shut down because I had to lay there long enough to hear God say, that's not what I said. What I said is, look at me, Juanita. You have worn yourself out because you've had this narrative. I will only love you if you are doing stuff for me. Juanita, I just love you because I love you. And so the dark night of the soul gives us space where we're able to find our narratives falling apart. And we're able to see, because of the presence of God, new life coming to be, a new way of being, a new way of thinking, and even approaching our being. Many, um, St. Francis of D.C. experienced the dark night of the soul. And many think who are in psychiatric hospitals right now are experiencing dark nights of the soul. Many who are quarantined at home uh, with COVID-19 are experiencing dark nights of the soul. It's when you question, who am I? And what is this life all about anyway? Or is this all there is to life? And so one of the things I want to say, so I'll remember it, is to a person who finds themselves in that place and to people like Josh and I who are living with mental health diagnosis and the realities of those diagnoses, I want to say one of the other most substantial things that happened to me in that space of the dark night was God asked me, what do you want? What do you really want? I'm gonna put it to you another way. What would you love? What would you love? You see, I found that I was so busy trying to follow the rules that it no place for pleasure or desire or want to's. The fun things didn't have a place in my life. I remember, and I think I talk about this in the book, that one Friday night, my daughters, my husband and I were supposed to all watch this movie together. And the movie was The Legend of Bagger, Bagger Vance. Um, I'm not a golfer, but I had just heard it was a good movie, so we were all going to watch it. And I'm working on my sermon, so I tell them, y'all, I can't, I can't come to family movie night because I'm too far behind on my sermon. This was before the crash. And so um, my girls, of course, are going, no, mom, come on. And so finally, um, they begin to watch the movie with their dad. And as I'm sitting at my desk working on the sermon, the spirit said, first of all, I couldn't find the ending for the sermon. It just wasn't coming. And so here I am in that work harder grind mode, see if I can grind through it and get an answer, get an ending for this message. And the spirit says, go watch the movie. 
And so I'm arguing with the spirit. You know, I've got this sermon. I'm trying to finish this sermon. You know, I don't want to flop. I want to have a good word for the people of God. And you're telling me to go to move it. You know, we do this. God offers us insight, offers us healing. And then we want to fuss with him about it. Or fuss with her about however you want to see God. So finally, Avian, I yielded, got up, went and watched the movie, had a great time. And the end of my sermon was in the movie. But my narrative before or up until the point had been try harder, work harder, you make it happen. Instead of relying on the presence of God to allow me to have both and. It wasn't either or. This too is a new way of learning to be. Moving outside of dualistic thinking where it's either black or white. The world is nine billion, nine trillion <laughs> shades of gray. And the spirit gives us the capacity to live with both and. I hope that helps. Yeah, and it, and it just seems like God was in different ways trying to communicate that same idea that he did with the cheese to you um you know like when you were laying in bed and you and he you know you were just wrestling with this and going back and forth and and i think just again to bring it personally for me i I that in my own life often is that she she's really 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 great at caring for everybody in her life um she will bend over backwards for anybody that she loves um, mm-hmm. but then when it's except for often herself right, <laughs> so, right. You know, and, she bends over and then she can't get up again yeah, yeah and yeah. and she's 31 years old and it, sometimes you you can see you know even like you were saying physically where like she will say you know my back just hurts so much today or sure. and I'm just really sure. sore or I've got this crazy headache and you right. say well, you're only 31 years old but then you start to right. realize that everybody around her is almost at this place of expectation that she'll sure. do all these things all the time. Sure. Um, sure. And I, the difference, I think, not compared to you, but, I, but what's good for her is that she knows that. And then now mm-hmm. for the last six to 12 months, she has done a really great job at saying, uh, you know what? I'm not doing the dishes tonight. So someone else, right. and she'll, she'll say it out right. loud. Somebody else right. needs to take care of the dishes right. tonight. Somebody right. else so good. Her away tonight. That is I'm not so doing good. it. She'll celebrate done. her. I've done I'm done. Yeah. I've done everything yeah. tonight. I've done it. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm yeah. now I'm finished. And that's good. You know what's great is that everybody responds to that. More yeah. so than her just doing. They responded to sure. them just saying, All right, you know, she's got it. But when yeah. she says, I'm not doing anything else, I'm done. I need right. else to do this. It's been so great yeah. to see people respond because they recognize you know, how much they care for her and how much they want exactly. to support her in that. Sure. So, uh, sure. I, I totally hear everything you're saying. And like, I see it in her, but more so I see it in everyone and everyone sure. who winds up falling into that place. So. Sure. Sure. You know, one of the things that's been helpful, and I mentioned it in the book, um, is the taking the Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. I'm a one on the Enneagram. And uh, that you're a three. Yeah. Or she's a three. I'm a three. You're a three? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, and Josh so understanding. Oh, really? Okay. Well, understanding our shadow side. Jung Carl, the Swiss psychologist, spoke a lot about the shadow. Um, and to understand that the shadow does not uh, necessarily mean our sinful nature. 
The shadow side simply means the part of us that everybody else sees that we don't see. And so when we can begin to see, that's also what I think happens in the dark night of the soul. That's an opportunity to begin to see the soul, to see the mind's functioning, to see um, the places where I have willed things or not willed things, to see my emotions, see how I'm responding to things. Um, and so I just, ah, gosh, I celebrate your wife um, finding her voice, claiming her autonomy and being able to say, I'm done. Again, this is one of the ways of, of I talk about setting healthy boundaries um, and, and even learning. So I'm going to give you another example. I didn't recognize it, but I was having a lot of the same symptoms your wife had before my depressive episode kicked in. I was having uh, lower back pain, sciatica, was, it was diagnosed as sciatica. I was having headaches and I wasn't a person that normally had headaches. I was having all these miscellaneous aches and pains that seemed to be coming out of nowhere. But I didn't know to connect them to be my mind saying, stop, we can't take this anymore. All right. The back, um, there's a wonderful book by Louise Hay. It's called You Can Heal Your Life. And it says the back, especially uh, the lower part of the back, represent not feeling supported. And I was. But I wasn't asking anybody for help either because I felt like I could do it all. And everybody around me thought I could do it all. So there was a new narrative that I had to create. And it sounds like your wife is starting to do her work of creating a new narrative. So I celebrate you that. Almost, you almost listed every, well, you did. You listed everything that she has dealt with physically, her back and sciatica, headaches, yeah. um, random, yeah. you know, all of a sudden, you know, oh, like, you know, oh my gosh, what's that? Like, yeah. and her, yeah. she's going through physical therapy uh, two times a week now. And one of the best parts about it is the physical therapist gave her some exercises and stretches to do at home. And so Good. she goes for, and it's literally just this hour long gentle massage for an oh, hour that she gets and it's that's covered good. by insurance. And <laughs> Praise <laughs> God for insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's, she's been getting a lot of self-care time and uh, he's very, she's an introvert, just like you and being yeah in the past, being a pastor's wife and having to be yeah. extroverted. Um, yeah. We stepped away from ministry. Yeah, we stepped away from ministry a year ago, oh, just a little over a year ago now, uh, just time of renewal and trying to find new yeah. peace. Um, sure. And when we talked about ministry, the, uh, going back into it, every time she mentions, I just don't know that I'm ready to step back into that role, sure. needing to be sure. someone I'm not on Sunday sure. mornings. Um, sure. And so, so I, it's everything you're talking about is connecting for her. I wish she was here. Invite her. (laughs) Yeah. Invite her, get her a copy of the book. All right. Uh, And invite her to move through that. Also tell us, feel free to call me anytime. Um, I talk to people all the time, especially who are in leadership roles or contemplating them or whatever. And so here's one of the things that happened for me. I redefined my role. I redefined it with my husband. Um, And and that was the key because he and I are co-pastors at our church. Um, and in redefining the role with him, first of all, uh, so that we realigned expectations for me, now I, believe it or not, do what I want to do, not what other people want me to do or think I should be doing. And you know what I found out? That when you take those things that you thought were shoulds, oughts, must, 
do's off your plate, they'll either stay on the floor or somebody will come along and go, oh, well, how this get here? Maybe I should pick this up and do something with it. So it'll either not get done because perhaps it doesn't even need to be done. Or somebody will come along who has gifts, the graces, the patience, the the um, the chutzpah to do whatever that is, you know. Uh, but this is the key: is that we have the opportunity to define how we will be in the world, and that's called the gift of life. But most of us don't recognize it in that way. We just make this big assumption. You know what they say about assumptions, right? That everything has to be done by us because that's the way everybody else does it. You know, all the other pastors' wives are doing it that way, so I must need to do it that way too. No. Not as long as um, my husband and I have an understanding about my role and about how I am choosing to serve and knowing for me that the ways I serve I offer my best self in that. And that way I don't have to give leftovers to myself or anybody else. And let me tell you this, um, Mark, the first chapter, verse 35, was the first place that the Spirit showed me that I didn't have to say yes to everything. And it freaked me out. I was like, what? You tell me Jesus said no? Okay, so in Mark 1, if you read 1 down one down to 34 he's healed people he's cast out demons and then it says early in the morning uh on the next day he gets up early in the morning goes out to a deserted place to pray says the the disciples now one translation says the disciples hunted him all right and disciples hunt for you why because the disciples have an agenda they want to get Jesus back on the big stage because all the people out there waiting and the disciples have never had this much fun in their entire life. So they want Jesus back on that stage, right? And so Jesus says to them, we're going to the next town. And they were like, Jesus, all the people out there waiting. What do you mean? He said, we're going to the next town. That's a no. No, we're not doing that. We're going to the next town, all right? And so one of the most sacred words I've learned now is no. Thank you. I appreciate that opportunity, but that's not my side. And you learn all these creative ways of being able to say no. Discerning, taking, not just saying yes, because the question got asked in, a, uh, uh, in the midst of a board meeting. What I've learned to do now is to say, let me take the information and I'll get back to you. Because there are no decisions that have to be made immediately unless there's blood or fire. So we're learning to be. Mm. And it sounds like your wife is doing a good job starting her journey on being. <laughs> awesome. Well, Juanita, this um, has been a, a wonderful conversation. I know I want to be fair to your time, but I just I want to leave you with um, one thing or at least just say it before you go. Um, and it's just for me personally, like so much of uh, what you wrote about and the, um, the story that you told uh, connects with me on such like a deep and, and personal level, um, especially right now. I, I probably would identify what I'm currently going through as a quote, dark night of the soul. There's um, I've been working through 
a few really big things um, in spiritual direction. I have an awesome spiritual director. Her name okay. is Sid, uh, Sid Holstall. Oh, that's great. She's wonderful. Um, and so one of the things that I'm realizing though, and, and you talked about this so much is like, I think I've been trying to live in and be somebody else that other people told me I should be. Exactly. And, uh, and that's, that's been really difficult. And I'm, I'm realizing that uh, something that once gave me life is now doing the opposite. And so what I'm sure. trying to figure sure. out is what does it mean uh, for me right now? What do I do with that information? <laughs> because the thing sure. that happened- Do you have some- Hmm? Go, go on. I'm oh, sorry, I was going to say, no, you're good. The, the thing that happened uh, happens to be the thing that, you know, once gave me life, but is now not. Um, also just happens to be uh, my vocation, <laughs> my job. Sure. Uh, as a pastor in a church. Okay. And so I'm trying to figure out what do okay. I do with that? Um, and so I've been working through that okay. and it's just been so helpful. Um, you know, your book uh, spoke to so many aspects of that and uh, it's been a, a very nice companion on my own journey. So thank you so much uh, oh, for your beautiful. work. My pleasure. Yeah. I want to offer you one last thing, not only you, but for the audience period. I want to invite you to take a piece of paper and fold it into four, fold it in half, then fold that half and half again. So it looks like a four paned window, right? So you've got pane number one, two, number three, number four. In one of the panes, I want you to write vocation. Now understand vocation is a Latin word. It does not mean job. It means the way you're called to serve in the world. So we write vocation in one of those squares, those panes. In the second pane, write relationships. In the third pane, write time and money. And in the fourth pane, write health and well-being. Now on the top of the page or under each category, I want you to write, what would I love? So under vocation, what would I love? What would I love? What would I absolutely love? All right. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask that question in each area. Right now, the area really got a lot of charge for you is the vocation area. So I'd like you to ask yourself, take some time and ask yourself, in the year 2023, I want to respond this way to my vocation. Here's the phrase. I am so grateful and proud that I, and you're gonna reflect on 2020. So here's an example. Uh, one of the things I'm saying in mind for vocation is last year the Holy Spirit made it really clear to me that I was playing my life too small. And in envisioning 2023, I said, okay, so I'm, I'm gonna be open to receive and to give love. I'm going to be open to my most expansive life. That's a word I want you to write down under vocation, expansive. And be able to, from that place say, I am so grateful and I am so proud that in 2020, I held the learning to be experience. 
I was able to empower 105 persons on November the 7th to begin to look at their narrative and not only that, begin to glean what was life giving out of the narrative or if there was some shift that needed to occur. Out of that experience, I have now uh, been able to uh, schedule 10 workshops each year where I have an opportunity to do more of this work with people all over the world. Now, that's me talking about 2023, reflecting back. You got it? There are two ways we can get energy for living. One is to look back at good memories of things we love doing and do more of those things. Got it? The second is to envision what we want our life to feel like in the future. Put the word feel like. I am so grateful. I am so proud that I feel enthused about the work I do. I am now, and then you just begin to let your, the spirit in you speak to you about what it is that you're longing to do. Because there are two ways that we can move forward when we find ourselves in a place that sounds like they sure is. One is we have to notice our discontent and name it. What's not working anymore, all right? But then also notice what your heart is longing for. Now, there's so many times we'll say, but I can't change this thing. There's nothing I can do about this. So here's what I wanna say to you. Take one step that would move you towards change. One step, just take one step. Get quiet, ask the spirit. This, this is this, this, this part of this, this part of this vocation sucks. I don't like it. How can I move out of this into more of what is life giving for me? And then you begin to say, okay, so one step I could take is uh, cancel having five meetings a week on five days a week. Oh, you mean I could put all five of those meetings on one day? and be done with that? Hadn't thought about that. Wow, thank you, Holy Spirit. But here's the key. You have to say, I am open to receive and to give love. So do that with me. Stick your hands out in front of you like you're clasping them and say, I'm open to receive and to give love. Take your hands all the way back as far as you can. I come back again. I'm open to receive and to give love. When you find yourself constricted in an area of your life, those four areas I've just given you, vocation, relationship, time and money, freedom, health and well-being, those are the four pillars of every life. When we find ourselves constricted, we have to recognize, hey, there's a constriction happening here. There's discontentment in this area. So physically state, I am open to receive and to give love. God is love, information is love, insight is love, the spirit uh, showing us our areas of discontent, that's love, longing is love. Allow that to come into you, allow that energy to get stirred up in you again. And then I believe you're gonna find answers start to come. Don't worry about how they come. Just know that if you'll stay, they'll come. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that.
I appreciate it. So helpful. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Juanita, can we have you thank on the show you. every week? Just <laughs> <laughs> well, look. I don't know about Aaron. I would be delighted to come back. I would be delighted to come back. You guys are fun, and I appreciate that. Yeah, you are too. Yeah, it was wonderful. Juanita, where can people go uh, to find you and interact uh, with you and your work? Thank you. They can go to Erasmus.com. I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and all pretty much all of that as Juanita Rasmus, J-U-A-N-I-T-A, last name R-A-S-M-U-S. The one last thing I want to mention is that my book, Meant to Be, is available anywhere books are sold. You can get it through InterVarsity Books, or you can get it at Amazon, any place books are sold. But also, you heard me say, on November the 7th, this this Saturday, I'm doing the, I'm uh, facilitating the learning to be experience. And it's available if you go to my social media or go to my website. It's a 2.5 hour uh, event that we are going to be doing real work around the we've talked about today, particularly the who am I and the second part of what would I love. Mm. Howard Thurman was the um, dean of the chapel at Boston University. And Howard said, we need more people. Uh, and these are my words, not his exactly. Uh, we don't need more people in essence just doing stuff, we need more people um, doing what they love. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's in, uh, that's, that's also talked about in the book. Um, oh, man. Um, John Eldridge wrote. Um, oh, he's okay. talking about Wild at Heart. Yeah. And he says, uh, he says, uh, the world doesn't need more people doing what other people want them to do. The world needs more people doing what they want. Exactly. Uh, and I, I think there's, I think there's yeah. a lot of truth to that. So. Oh, there is a truth to that. Yeah, mm. there is. But see, when you do what you love, you have passion, you have insight, you have energy, and um, at the same time, it becomes contagious to other people. Other people see you doing the thing you love, and they begin to realize, well, maybe I can do the thing I love, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Juanita, again, this is wonderful. We'll definitely have to take you up on that offer to, to come back and hang out sometime, because uh, this was great. I'd love it. Yeah, we'll also, we'll be Thank sure to you. send you uh, an email and all once this episode drops so you can have the link and um, all that good stuff. Absolutely. And always, wonderful. we like to end our show. Uh, Marty and I are slightly competitive, so I normally say, go Caps. Go Blackhawks. And go Houston Arrows. <laughs> you always have to upstate. Well, the Houston Arrows are defunct. They're no longer there anymore. <laughs> So by default, they always win because they're never playing. So you're good. That's, That's a good team. They That's can never right. lose again. They, <laughs> right. wanna, they left on top. That's it. There we go. There we go. What Bye. a joy to be with you both. It was great Thank to you see you. Peace and love, guys. Uh,